Amen. Well, turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 15 in your copy of God's Word, Romans chapter 15. We'll read verses 1 through 13, and God willing, look at all of the verses that we're reading today from Romans chapter 15. Again, we rejoice in God's work in our church. Had the privilege last week of announcing new members. We have the privilege of doing that again this week. So Heath and Ashley Peterson met with the elders uh, last week and professed their faith. They've done that before in a PCA church. We, we like to hear that whenever new people come. Why are you a Christian? What's your hope for eternal life? And they give a good confession. So their letter of membership will be transferring here. Of course, Chance comes as well as a covenant child. Um, we welcome all three of them. So if you haven't met them yet or had a chance to say hello, please do that today. And of course, we welcome you to our church. Romans chapter 15, and let me read, as I've said, verses 1 through 13. Hear now God's word. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, and him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again for his help. Father in heaven, again, we come to you for your help because without you, we can do nothing. We pray in line with the author of Psalm 119. Make us understand the way of your precepts and we will meditate on your wondrous works. You're the Lord and creator of heaven and earth, as we confess. You've made every light in the sky, so grant that the life-giving spirit will teach us today to understand your word, and that we can meditate on all your works, your judgments, victories, captivities, redemptions, and, and in the light of your word, understand what you're doing in our life. As we go through this world, as we go through our lives, as we go through different seasons, sunny days, days that will eventually get warmer, but also cloudy and cold days, we'd see you at work in our lives and follow you. We pray for your grace to do this, and we give you our thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Romans chapter 15 we come to today as we've been working our way through this section that is really united around one thought. I want to ask this question as we begin to look at this passage today. Are you familiar with the phrase, do your job? Now, if I say that generally, you could probably figure out what I mean. But specifically, that phrase has been used by the New England Patriots football team to kind of define their team culture, what they're all about. It expresses this mindset that every individual, every player, every employee, they know exactly what their responsibilities are. Every job is explicit. Every responsibility and description is clear. And everyone is to do their job to the best of their ability. And it's not just that each person appears and kind of works independently of others. that They have a job that integrates together through the leadership of their coach and other coaches. And when they do their job, the whole team works together in harmony. It's one of the reasons they were very successful throughout the 2000s. Now think about it from the opposite perspective. Think of some of the jobs you've worked in your life. Maybe you were part of a team or an organization where you didn't know what your job was. Or maybe other people didn't do their job. Maybe you knew yours, but someone else didn't, and they kept trying to do your job. That's frustrating, isn't it? When people are disorganized and they're moving at cross-purposes, you start stepping on each other's toes and hampering productivity. People can work together as groups, but they have to know their job. They have to know their role in the group and how all those roles integrate for the good of the whole. Well, as we come to the passage we've read today, Paul says a lot about what God is doing in the church and what God is doing in the world. In other words, this passage says a lot about the goal and the mission of the church. And furthermore, he says a lot about what we do and how we find our place in God's work in the world. So the focus is on what God is doing and the idea is here's how you can participate. And this is how Paul concludes this idea that he began in the last chapter, when he argued that accepting and loving one another through those means the gospel will heal our divisions in the church. Well, today Paul will outline the practical effects. Okay, when you follow that blueprint, this is what will happen. This is how you will find your place in the church. And as Paul has done throughout this whole letter, everything is grounded in what Jesus has done, what the Messiah has accomplished and is still accomplishing in the world. God isn't just sitting in heaven ticking down the time until he's scheduled to show up again. He is doing something in his world now. And when we follow Paul's instructions in this passage, we take our place. We get in line with what God is doing. You could say here that Paul has given us a script. Maybe you've been part of a drama club or a theater production at some point in your life. This is the script. This is how you act out and play your part in this unfolding drama of God's work in the world. To use a different analogy, it's a story that Paul is telling. And this is how you know your place in this story. So let's look at this passage then that shows us when we accept one another... We find our place in God's purpose for the world. 
And what Paul shows us here is three ways we find our place. Let's look at them together this morning. First, when we accept one another, we reflect Christ to one another. Paul gives his opening admonition in verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now notice here that for the first time, Paul identifies himself as part of the strong. Now I don't think he hid his affiliation particularly well in the previous chapter, but now he just comes right out and he identifies himself as one of the strong. One of those whose conscience allows him to eat all foods and who no longer feels obligated to observe Jewish holy days. And he writes that those who are strong should bear with the failings of the weak. Now, I don't like the translation bear with. It sounds like Paul is saying, you know, put up with or tolerate one another. But the key word is the same word we find in Galatians 6 2, where Paul writes, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. We don't just put up with the weak, we support them in their weakness. Now again, does that mean that we adopt the scruples of the weak? We support them by doing the same thing they do. No, Paul's put up some boundaries to keep us from going that far. But what he has laid down is that we would enter into their lives with them and help them carry their burdens. So while their choices can't dictate what everyone else must do, we would not withdraw from them in an uncaring way. One author puts it like this. What does it mean, or excuse me, what it means is that we are sympathetically to enter into their attitudes, to refrain from criticizing and judging them, and to do what love would require towards them. Love demands that the strong go beyond the distance implied in mere toleration. They are to treat the weak as brothers and sisters. Here's a theme you'll find in the Bible, a pattern that comes up again and again. Love always moves towards a problem. And that is the approach that Paul lays down here. And so verse 2 expands on this. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. We shouldn't so much as please ourselves, don't let that be your focus, as we should please one another. And when we please our neighbor, that will result in their good. That is their spiritual profit. It will build them up. That's the opposite of what Paul warned against, destroying and distressing them. No, please them, serve them, enter into their life with them, and that will make them strong. And so Paul, by the way, imagines that this is something the whole community is doing. It's not just one person being built up. The whole church is being made stronger because of these actions. And now before we come to Paul's reasons, he tells us why we should do this in verses 3 and 4. Let me quibble one more time with the translation of verse 1. Paul says the strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. I think failings is a poor choice of words here. That, That sounds more critical in English than I think Paul intends it to be. We could translate it as weaknesses. And so while that would be a little redundant, it would yield, bear with the weaknesses of the weak. And here's why I draw your attention to this point. 
we are all weak and strong in various areas. So in other words, it's not that everyone on this side of the church is in the strong category and everyone on this side is in the weak. And we don't even know what to do with the annex people. But it's not as if, you know, it's this crystal clear uh, breakdown and this group needs to just put up with the failings of this group. No, a person, or in some areas, you may be strong and and in different areas, you may be weak. And the person who is weak where you are strong may be strong where you are weak. And again, strong and weak again. It's how our faith and our conscience process certain disputable practices. So one of the reasons we should all accept one another in the faith is because all of us need this care in some area. And so Paul then in verse 3 gives us the reason why we should play this kind of role in God's kingdom. He writes, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. First, Paul appeals directly to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose overall purpose of life was to give himself for others. So as Christ bore our sins, so we can bear one another's burdens. It's not weak to accommodate someone else. Christ, the Lord of the universe, walked that kind of path to glory. And then second, Paul supports his appeal to Jesus with an appeal to the Old Testament. He cites Psalm 69.9, which reads, For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Now, on the one hand, this could just be a general appeal to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his life fits this general statement from the Old Testament on the sufferings of Christ. But I think it's a little bit more than that. Let me just read you a couple sentences from one of the books I read. It kind of gave me this idea. This author writes, Psalm 69 is a classic poem about the suffering of Israel in general and of the righteous one within Israel in particular. And Paul sees it as a statement of the plight of God's people summed up in the plight of their ultimate representative, their anointed king. And so the poem works its way through the present plight of the writer, through the summoning of God's judgment against evil, to a great outpouring of praise for God's deliverance. And that is a pattern that Jesus' life followed as well as he obeyed God in the way God called him. Now, I know that's a lot of details. It's something it would reward your own study of Psalm 69. But, but here's what the point he's trying to make. God's people often suffer. They, they often experience persecution from their surrounding enemies, and they pour out their hearts to God. Psalm 69 is one of those psalms. But what Psalm 69 tells us is, okay, there's going to be this representative figure, and he'll endure that harassment, but he'll commit his soul to God. And he will ultimately triumph over God's enemies when God delivers him. And that's how God will bring his reign to the earth. Which ironically, as we see in Jesus' ministry, involves saving 
those same enemies. Here's why I said all that. Paul isn't just reaching for some general statement from the Old Testament. Hey, you know, when, when you're insulted, do good in response. No, Psalm 69 is like, what is God doing in this world? What is God doing with the evil in this world? Well, he's going to send a representative person who will conquer that evil, who when insulted will still commit his soul to God. And so when you imitate his life, you are participating in his reign. You are getting in line with what God is doing in the world. To follow the way of Christ is to find your place in God's purpose in the world. That is the job he's given us to do. And so when you accept one another, you're reflecting Christ to one another. Christ, according to Psalm 69, he took up the cause of others rather than pleasing himself. He became that representative figure. And that's how he brought salvation to the world. So for you to do likewise, it's not just like, hey, you know, we're kind of really late in Romans. It gets optional at this point. This is low priority obedience. Or Paul would have gotten to it a lot sooner. No, this is the core of what God is doing. And maybe it's taken all of Romans for Paul to finally get to the point where he can deliver the big payoff for the corporate life of the church. Living this way is non-negotiable. But not only that, it has great value. You embrace this kind of path, you embrace this kind of life, you're bringing a lot of glory to God. And you're doing a lot of good to others. You're getting to the heart of what God is doing in the world, the reason he even keeps creation around. And I think verse 4, by the way, drives that idea home. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And I'll tell you, whenever I've read this verse in the past, I just took it as like a general statement of the relevance of the Old Testament. Oh yeah, the Old Testament still instructs us as Christians. But I want you to think again of that verse. In light of what we just saw Paul doing with Psalm 69. Paul just told us the work of Christ, that's what Psalm 69 was anticipating. That's what Psalm 69 was all about. I think in verse 4, he's broadening the principle. He's saying God's work in the world through Christ, that's what the whole Old Testament was about. That's what all of God's work has been about. Rescuing his creation. Bringing all kinds of people together. That's the whole reason God enters into covenants and reveals himself and gives us scriptures and gives us Christ so that he can work through his people for the good and the salvation of the world. And that should give us some encouragement. That should give us some hope. As I said last week, for the Romans to accommodate Jewish scruples, that that could invite criticism. That could invite discrimination, perhaps, from the writer Roman world. And when you're going through that kind of experience, you need hope. That that, That reproach could even come from fellow Christians. They just can't understand. Why would you be so welcoming? Why would you be so accommodating? Paul says, because that's how you'll reflect Christ to one another. And that's how you'll find your place in God's purpose for the world. So take hope that that's a good way to walk. 
So that's the first thing Paul shows us here. When we accept one another, we reflect Christ to the world. How else can we find our part in God's story? Two, when we accept one another, we worship God in unity. Now, I have alluded to verses 5 and 6 in all of the sermons on Romans 14. So it's high time I read them to you. Paul writes, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those verses are probably familiar to you. We often use them at the end of the service as a benediction. And when it comes to their general idea, not hard to grasp. May God enable you to follow these instructions so that you may bring glory to God. The general idea is very clear. But don't miss also the very specific reference that these verses make to the unified worship of the congregation. Verse 6 again. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's worship language. With their mind and with their voice, they bring glory to God. And so not only should the church be able to come together for common meals, the issue of the food being served, they should also be able to worship, to glorify God with one mind and one voice. And when Paul says here in verse 6 that you need to have one mind, or when he says in verse 5, you need to have the same attitude of mind. Again, that does not mean that everyone in the church has to take the same position on disputable matters. However, everyone should have the same perspective on disputable matters. You say, okay, well, what's the difference? It means we recognize that there are areas of agreement and disagreement. And in the proper areas of disagreement, we accept one another. Again, I think Paul implies that the boundaries of acceptance are within the gospel. Church isn't a complete free-for-all. But within the boundaries of the Christian faith, the church accepts one another and worships and lives together with one mind and one voice. And not only will that bring glory to God, but that will be part of your witness to the world. Again, this is how you'll find your place in God's story. One author writes, That glad unanimity of praise and worship, which indicates both to the watching world and to the Christians themselves that they are not worshiping a merely local deity, the projection of their own culture, but the one true God of all the world, the God now known as the Father of Jesus the Messiah. In other words, you've got two different kinds of people coming together. People with their own heritage and their own gods and their own way of life, but they're coming together and becoming one. So how can others tell that Christianity isn't something we follow just because it serves our own ends? In other words, we don't say, oh, I like being a Christian because it allows me to accomplish these things that I kind of already wanted to do anyway. How can you disprove that allegation? Because the gospel moves us to sacrifice for the sake of others. 
When these two groups are willing to give up and to accommodate and to work together, then that would communicate to the world that there was something more important to them than serving their own ends. And that would enable them to say, this is because of what Jesus has done for the world. So when we do this, when we follow the blueprint of Romans, it will communicate that message. It will further God's purpose in the world as we worship together. And then lastly, when we accept one another, we extend Christ's lordship in the world. So we accomplish this goal of what God is doing by not only reflecting Christ to each other, but now also we see reflecting and extending Christ's lordship in the world. Paul ends this section of Romans today with this series of quotations from the Old Testament. In verses 7 through 9, this is the big idea that Paul is making. They read, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God For his mercy. So, again, what is God up to in his world? Paul tells us Christ came to fulfill the promises to Israel, to accomplish his covenant purposes. And in doing so, in being faithful to Israel, he is also calling all the nations to receive God's mercy under Jesus' lordship. And by the way, if you remember way back, Several months ago, this is exactly how Paul began Romans. The gospel concerns God's Son, Jesus the Lord, who descends from David and has fulfilled the scriptures and is calling all the nations to obey the faith. Paul started there, and that's where he's going to end. He's like a baseball player who hits a home run. You have to step on every base. And now Paul has stepped on the bases. He is ready to cross home plate. In fact, he's like when a, when a player hits a walk-off grand slam. He's going to hit home plate with both feet. Paul has been saying, Jesus is Lord. God, through Christ, is pursuing his purpose of extending, of exercising lordship over his creation. So if you want to participate in that work, then accept one another in the church. That is how you will find your place in God's purposes. By accepting one another, you will extend Christ's lordship in the world. You will bear witness to the reality that he is bringing all people together and saves people on the basis of grace by faith alone. And that's a purpose that's bigger than any of our rights and purposes. That's a purpose that is worth pursuing. And that's what we find, by the way, in this string of citations from the Old Testament. Now, normally I would explain each of these. I think at this point we just get bogged down in the details. It'll be in the notes if you get those via email. Basically, if you just look at these four citations, Paul is just saying over and over again, God through Christ is exercising lordship over his creation. And that lordship involves the praise of the Gentiles. And in this way, God fulfills his promises to his people. 
And so, friends, this is the gospel. This is what Romans is all about. One more quotation there. Paul says, even the Messiah was not able to please himself, but instead had to take on himself the insults which people were heaping on Israel's God, the self-humiliation, the renouncing of rights, which formed the path Jesus had to tread to complete his messianic work, is also the path which Christians must tread as they put that work into practice. Paul opened the Romans by saying, this is the gospel, Jesus is Lord, he's calling the nations, he's starting to wrap up Romans. By telling us one more time, Jesus is Lord, and he's calling the nation. So if you want to be a part of that purpose, then follow these instructions that Paul gives us here in Romans 14 and 15. It's a good path. It's the path where you'll find your place for God's purposes for the world. So let's give thanks and let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, We do thank you again for this consideration of the gospel throughout Romans as we began many months ago. And as you lead in those first chapters, so much attention given to how you rescue us from sin and death, how you unite us to Christ in order to sanctify us, how this is part of your ancient and eternal purposes for your people. From those great truths now to these here towards the end of the book, truths about the common worship and life in the church, these are all important, dare we say, essential manifestations and truths connected with the gospel. So thank you for these beautiful truths of Jesus' lordship, mercy, and grace, and the impact it makes in our lives, not only individually, but corporately. So teach us your truth. Teach us, show us how to live out our calling in this world. And may there be fruit. I think we long to know at times that actions done in obedience to you will actually bear fruit, will have some eternal significance. Would you be pleased to even show us some of that fruit in our lives together or in our life in this community and beyond? Help us to trust that our obedience to you is worth it and exactly what uh, you bless and use. And then particularly, Lord, as we've considered these last few weeks of how to accept and love one another, how to build one another up in the body, help us to do it well. Help us to understand what matters are disputable, where we should find unity, where we should find cooperation, where we can accept one another, even with differences. And help us to do that well. And we pray these things for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing in closing hymn 703, Loved with Everlasting Love, hymn 703, and we'll sing verses 1, 3, and 4. Stand with me, please, verses 1, 3.